Coming up, the number one fantasy book podcast, breaking down the scrolls and spells of nerd culture. We're Phantology. You may have heard of us. Going back to Ben Stike, I honestly felt like he's sort of a slightly better version of the mountain who rides from Game of Thrones. <laughs> ben Stike is literally just like this seven foot giant of a man. He does have a much better sense of morals than the mountain who practically has none. Yeah, pretty much anyone has a better sense of morals than him. Yeah, seriously. I mean, he, he popped a dude's head like a grapefruit. I mean, Ben Stike would probably do something similar if it was for the right reasons. If it was a dragon man, probably. He likes yeah. to take those guys down. What's up, powder mages and dragon men? This is Steven, and Ryan is with me, and we're going to be reviewing the last book of the Gods of Blood and Powder trilogy by Brian McClellan. This is the end of the second trilogy of Powder Mage books, and this is kind of an end of an era because I don't think he's writing any more Powder Mage books. They're a pretty uh, niche type of book. They're a flintlock military fantasy. So if you're really into all three of those things, these are books for you. What's up, Ryan? Not much, Steven. It's good to be back, and I'm excited to talk about Blood of Empire. I think it was a satisfying conclusion to this trilogy. What about you? I was iffy on it. There are some things that I like, some things that I didn't like. I recorded one of our uh, raw reaction videos that we try to do for for Patreon, and I just kind of said, like, there wasn't anything that I hated, but there also wasn't anything that I really loved a whole lot. So it was pretty vanilla for me. I felt like he kind of played it safe. Yeah, I mean, I don't think this is a masterpiece of literature, but I think Brian McClellan kind of did a good job of what he did in the first trilogy where he created um, some new characters in an interesting world with unique magic systems and didn't really fall into many tropes, just a lot of interesting action and development, both political and a lot of uh, military movements, if you will. And I thought he did a good job and sort of scratched my powder mage itch once again. Yeah, they're definitely pretty unique stories. The just I mean, like I said, they're flintlock military. So how often do you see that? And they are very character focused. But at the same time, they're larger scale military type books. I asked you if they remind you of Malazan at all. And I think you said something like they don't really, but they should more than they do because they are about empires and military. Yeah, I mean, I think the the genres are similar and it does sort of follow a lot more intimately like military units in which the same thing in Malazan where you, where you follow squads a lot. It, it's similar. I guess you're following more of the leadership of the military in Powder Mage books, but I, I think just the feel of the books is so much different, whereas Malazan is not as character focused as this. I think it makes it a much different feel in which I didn't really think much of Malazan as I was reading these books. And the characters are good, right? I mean, there's some some pretty memorable characters. I think my favorite out of the three was Stike over Vlora and Mikkel. Those are our three POV characters. Which was your favorite of those three? Yeah, I mean, I would probably have to say in the order I liked Stike the most followed by Mikkel and then Vlora, unfortunately last. I think she was an all right character, but I liked Taniel in the first trilogy a lot more as a 
point of view character than Flora in this book. Yeah, I had some issues with her as well. And we'll kind of get into that as we get into the meat of the discussion. But before we go too far, let me say Phantology Books. Follow us on social media at Phantology Books and on our website, www.phantologybooks.com. I might have thrown in an extra W there. Only type three W's. Stick with that typical convention. All of our links are online. And if you really like the channel, the podcast, you can chat with us on Discord. Tell us what we're doing good, what we're doing bad. Uh, Give us your theories, your takes. We have a growing community there. So if there's a particular series that you're a fan of, odds are there are more fans on our Discord that would love to talk about it with you. And if you really, really like the channel and want to give us money, then hit up our Patreon where we post some exclusive content and have a few tiers. And shout out to NC underscore Towns who just joined as a patron. Thank you very much, sir. We appreciate your support. And it's really for, uh, I mean, really what keeps us going and keeps us doing this podcast is the fact that people are listening and they're enjoying what we're doing. And it's, it's fun to see a growing community. Yeah, I agree. I think our Discord has become a lot more active over the past weeks and months. And it's a lot of fun just to talk with fans of similar interests as as we have. And I, I think it it certainly makes for a lot more interesting experience the more participation we get. Yeah, I know that not everyone is into fantasy books. So odds are if you're an avid fantasy reader, you have lots of family and friends who are maybe not quite so much. But if you'd like to chat with some people who do like them, hop on our Discord. Anyway, enough plugs for Phantology. Let's talk Gods of Blood and Powder. So let's do our content warning. This is the last book. So if you've read the other books, you know what to uh, expect here. But Ryan, uh, there's not a whole lot, to be honest. There is some swearing. There's quite a lot of swearing, but no F-words. So no real hard swearing. And violence is, I mean, anything gruesome is more off camera. And sexual content, there's almost none. So as far as a content warning, did I miss anything? No, I think there there is some violence on camera that does take place, which people might want to be aware of. And But most of the sexual content is just kind of alluded to. It takes place off camera. And... That Yeah, I think that's pretty much it. The swearing is no hardcore swearing, just, I guess, minor to medium swearing, I guess, is the best way I'd describe it. Yeah, yeah, I didn't feel too much. And, and you're right, there is definitely some violence. This is definitely a more gray series, but not nearly as much as you would see with other authors. So this is the third book. We didn't get in reviews for the first two books because personally, I read them some time ago. And Brian, I think you actually read through all three really quickly. So we weren't able to get to those two. But we do want to start with recaps of book one and two. We're not doing a recap of the first trilogy. So you're on your own there. Go ahead and read that trilogy. It's it's fantastic. I think that's just called the Powder Mage trilogy. There's no uh, specific name like Gods of Blood and Powder. But book one is Sins of Empire. Ryan, what did you think of Sins of Empire? Just kind of high level. Did you like it? What did you think? Yeah, I mean, it's the first of this trilogy. It introduces you to a lot of new characters that weren't in the first trilogy. So it is a bit different. And it took me a little bit to get back into the world. It also takes place in a different area of the world, mainly than the first trilogy, which was dealing with Adra, right? Adua. Adua and, and their war with the that empire i'm blanking on the name the kez the kez, kez 
It's definitely not Ad- Adua. What is Adua? Adua is something else. This is Adro. Oh, Adua. Um, that's Adua's in first law. Oh yeah, of course. Yeah. Adua's the capital. Yeah, but similar names. Yeah. So this this involves Fatrasta, which I believe is on a different continent. There's kind of a sea separating them, and it's about yep. Fatrasta's this burgeoning country trying to establish itself, which sort of has an authority. Tarian Lady Chancellor, who a lot is very unpopular with a lot of people, and an oppressed native population called the Palo, who are trying to figure out how to get more rights for themselves, and and so it's it's set it's certainly a different setting than the first trilogy, but I, it didn't take me that long to get involved in the intrigues of this part of the world because there's a lot of things that the the first trilogy alluded to like the Dionys and blood magic. And so we start getting into that. And so I was interested in that from the first trilogy. Yeah, I think if you've read the first trilogy and haven't read any of blood of empire, or I mean, if you haven't read any of gods of blood and powder, if you liked the first trilogy, you're going to like this second trilogy. It's got a very similar feel to it. Like you said, it's in a different setting, different characters, A lot of the same characters come back, but a lot of favorites have also departed from the story. I really liked the the fact that we're kind of on the frontier here. Like you said, it's a burgeoning uh, burgeoning country, Petrasta, and it really just kind of lends itself to this like rifle jack uh, frontier. Almost reminds you of like America in the you know 1800s when things were being settled, and we have this Palo population. This is the native uh, folks who are being oppressed. And the action picks up through Vlora's eyes as she is initially hired by Lindet, the chancellor, to further suppress them and prevent them from rebelling. But eventually, we kind of, uh, as a reader, uh, through the character's eyes, come to side with the Palo. We realize that Lindet is being somewhat uh, dictatorial and unfair to these people. But then the script just flipped once again when we get towards the end of the book and the Dainais show up and they take over. So I guess spoilers for the end of this book. But I mean, like I said, we're going through all three of these books. So if you haven't read them, stop listening now. And I really liked, I thought these books were more of a slow burn than the first three. The first trilogy was really action-packed all the time. There was more intrigue, especially because you have one of the main point of view characters is a spy by profession. So there's more intrigue, there's more politics. But by the end, there was a lot of the action that Brian McClellan really kind of made a name for himself with his first trilogy with. Yeah, I mean, in the first trilogy, you start off first book right at the overthrow of the monarchy. And it's it's kind of throws you right into the action. Whereas this, the beginning of the book, there's sort of political turmoil and unrest in Fratrasta. And this guy, Mikel Bravis, is he's a spy for the Black Hats, who they're kind of like the KGB of Fatrasta. He reminded me a lot of Inspector Adamat from the first series, first trilogy. Yeah, definitely. In which, same type of character. Yeah, same type of character where they're both trying to unravel this mystery, which starts alluding to larger and larger problems. And and so I, I drew a lot of similarities similarities between those two characters. Except Adamant had his family that really defined him. And it's really kind of unclear what Mikkel's backstory is 
for a while, but he becomes a pretty interesting character as you realize that he's able to like keep these separate personalities and, and knowledge from uh, different parts of himself. So he's a super effective spy. Kind of reminds me like in Name of the Wind when Quoth splits his mind up into a bunch of different pieces in order to do magic. We have a similar thing going on here. Mikkel is a cool character. I I really liked uh, Mikkel quite a bit throughout the entirety of the series. And then the other main POV character is Ben Stike, who we previously both said was our favorite point of view character. He is a ex-colonel of the Mad Lancers, which is a company that won a lot of acclaim in the previous wars that we don't see in this series, but the wars that brought Lindet, the Chancellor, to power. But he has been disgraced and ordered ex- ordered to be killed. He was shot by a firing squad. He survived, of course, because he's Ben Stike. But he's in a, a prison camp, slaving away until he is freed by a mysterious man named Tampo, who we find out uh, not too much later is Taniel. So our hero from the first trilogy is back, although he really kind of plays more of a of a second fiddle to a lot of other characters. He's just kind of in the background of this series. Going back to Ben Stike, I honestly felt like he's sort of a slightly better version of the mountain who rides from Game of Thrones. <laughs> ben Stike is literally just like this seven foot giant of a man who was a cavalry officer and everybody was pretty much afraid of him. He's not afraid to kill people. He does have a much better sense of morals than the mountain who practically has none. Yeah, pretty much anyone has a better sense of morals than him. Yeah, seriously. I mean, he, he popped a dude's head like a grapefruit. Was, I mean, Ben Stike would probably do something similar if it was for the right reasons. If it was a dragon man, probably. He likes yeah. to take those guys down. Yeah, he's basically this guy who gets all sorts of gnarly injuries and gets into crazy fights and somehow comes out the end. And so he's he's a fun person to follow. Okay, let's move to the second book. This is the book, obviously, before the book we're going to spend the most time on. So this is Wrath of Empire, book two. So at this point, the Dionysus have come and taken control of Landfall. And the, the, the larger plot is starting. The larger plot of the series revolves around the Godstones, which are these mysterious artifacts. We don't know too much about them other than, look, we think that possession of them or activation of them is going to somehow create another god or commune with gods or something. But our heroes are intent on making sure that we capture these things or destroy them or prevent, mainly just prevent Dainai's from getting their hands on them because anyone other than our heroes that activates them, it's going to be bad. Luckily, Capole, who is back on the scene, can sense where they are. So Valora and Taniel take after take off after one. It's, it's like on one corner of the map. And then Stike takes off after another one with Capole. And Mikkel sticks around in Landfall to infiltrate the Dionys. And this book was kind of the same for me. It was a bit of a slow burn at the beginning and came to an exciting conclusion. How did this one stack up? against the first one, Ryan. You read them pretty recently. I thought it was a good middle book. Maybe a little bit of a sophomore slump. I guess that's more music, but not quite as good as the first book. But it definitely carried the actions, carried the action well, uh, developed the characters, and led well into the third book. The second and the third book are honestly a little bit hard to distinguish because I feel like it's just a long, drawn-out war between the Dionys and Lady Chancellor Lindet and 
the Palo. And so it, it's, it's hard to differentiate the two books in my mind. Yeah, I could see that because really the second book has a climax, but it's like three different climaxes. The characters are not all together at the end. So yeah, it just kind of rolls into the beginning of the next book. Agreed there. I think I'm going to go ahead and say I liked the first book the best, then the second, then the third. It was a really strong start. It went downhill a little bit, but still quite good by the end. I, I enjoyed all three books. I can't do the five-star, four-star, four three-star rating. I think that's a little too harsh. I have to reserve that for the Blood Song trilogy because that one crashed and burned by the end. But this one, I'm going to go like five stars, four and a half, maybe four for the third one, maybe three and a half. I, I don't know. What do you think? I would probably say four, three and a half, back to four, or even four and a half. Okay. So your your trend line looks a little bit different than mine. Yeah, I, I enjoyed the ending of this trilogy, definitely. Okay, so let's talk book three. Now that we've done some vague talk through the first two books, if you want more of a review of the first two books, maybe we'll get to those eventually. I know that Josh is starting to read Promise of Blood, which is the first in the first trilogy, the very first book that McClellan wrote. So if he continues to like those, we'll probably go through and review the rest of these. But book three, Blood of Empire. So Stike is off on one corner of the map, like we said, and he is crossing to Dionys with Capol because they know that uh, the Godstone is there because Capol can, I guess, distinguish them through a blood sorcery. And they cross, but unfortunately there is a storm and it messes up their plans. Their fleet and all the Mad Lancers are scattered. And so Stike makes a landing with only like 20 of his backup and they've landed in enemy territory. Things are not looking good. They have somewhat of a plan, but fortunately they meet up with the Dragon Man from the previous book that he buddy-buddied with or he saved. I think Capol broke his broke the Sediol's grip on him. So this guy's name is Ors, and he kind of likes them because he is an opponent of Kasadiel, who is the, not the emperor, but he is the force behind everything that's going on here. He's our villain. He's basically like the, the puppet master, whereas the emperor is the puppet. And Ors supported the opposite. There was a civil war, and he supported a different person to become emperor of the Dionys, who ended up losing and was killed. And so... Ors was outcast and only brought back in to try and fulfill some of Kossedjul's plans, but Kossedjul maintained blood magic over Ors to try and help him make ensure that he followed he followed his rules. Gotcha. Yeah, that makes sense. Thanks for clearing that up. So Ors helps them navigate through the enemy terrain. They pose as slaves, and they make their way to the capital where lo and behold. The godstone that they've been seeking is there right in the center, smack dab in, in front of everything, and the people like worship it. It's part of their religion. So their task is to go in and destroy this thing. It's not looking great because they've only got 20 guys and they're posing as slaves. So anyway, it's it's a pretty good start to the book. It's a good start to Stike's plot. What do you kind of think of the opening act here for Stike? It was slow for sure. He's, he's normally an action-packed character, and in the beginning, they're just, they just kind of go slowly through the countryside, guided by oars, and then they get to the city, but they have to lie low because they don't want anybody to find out that they're secretly this invading force, 
and or, or not ors but Stike is trying to meet up with the other lancers they got split apart i think in a storm their fleet so the other lancers we don't know where they are but they kind of want to meet up together so they can figure out how to destroy this godstone yeah i actually liked the beginning more i thought the middle portion of Stike's plot was a bit more boring a bit more slow uh didn't really jive with me as well but before we do that let's hop over to Vlora. Let's switch over to Vlora's plot. So we start with Vlora having lost her magic. She burned herself out after her tear through the Dainai's army in the at the end of the previous book. But she has met up with friends from the first trilogy, Bo and Nyla, who are both privileged sorcerers. I thought this was kind of fun. I really liked the end of the second book when they showed up on the scene. I really like when you have trilogies that have crossovers like this. And the action with Laura starts as they get word of another Godstone platform that the Dainais have have extracted from Yellow Creek, where they were previously. And then there's just kind of like a series of different conflicts with different Dainais forces. Um, they navigate these armies. There is this kind of showdown with an imposing general. And I, I don't know. I, I really wasn't into Valora's storyline quite as much, unfortunately. It didn't take me very far until the end. Yeah, I thought it was interesting. It kind of takes her down a darker path when she loses her magic. She just really gives into her baser instincts, I guess. There's a time where the army who she fought against, who she lost her abilities fighting against, they they have the advantage against them. And then the enemy officers keep trying to surrender and she just orders her army to kill them, not even letting them surrender. She doesn't want any of the officers who were responsible for her previous encounter to live. And it's it's kind of a dark way to see Vlora act. And she, she throughout the rest of the book, she starts to recover from this. And I think it's partly in thanks to this other general, uh, this Dionysus general who kind of sees Vlora as a younger version of herself and feels sympathetic towards her. Yeah, this is the general that I mentioned. She kind of has a showdown standoff with her. I think this general's name is Etapale, something like that. Does that sound familiar? Yeah, Etapale. Close enough. Some of, some of the names were a little weird. But yeah, like you say, I was a little disappointed in Vlora, and I'll talk more about this when we talk through the rest of her plotline. But I felt like with the loss of her magic, she really had an opportunity to show her true worth, show her mettle, if you will, because why couldn't she have led the army just as effectively without her magic and really grown as a character and been more than being a powder mage? That's kind of what I was hoping for, but we really got the opposite. We got her completely falling apart and going down this dark path. And it wasn't until later when, I mean, spoilers for the end, but she gets her magic back. That's when things start to come back together for her. And this really kind of put a sour taste in my mouth because it was like, she's only what she is because she's a powder mage and because she can do this magic. But I would have liked to see her as more of a human character and do things on her own. So I partially agree with what you say and partially disagree. I feel like it shows her humanity a little bit when she loses her uh, powder mage abilities. She kind of loses her core identity as a powder mage. She's able to take a bit more, part in the combat she's able to scout by seeing further and so she has intelligence more readily at hand by not having to wait for scouts 
and things like that. And so when she has that ripped away from her, she needs to find her way once again. And so just because she goes down a darker path and doesn't find her metal initially, I think that's just her human side. I don't think that's a huge character flaw for her. But I do agree that her getting her powers back at the end kind of cheapens the growth that she has during the the rest, the latter half of the novel. Yeah, I can I can see you there where you're saying I can meet you halfway. We'll say where you're saying that it shows her human side. It shows that, yeah, she lost her identity. And obviously that's going to have a bad effect on who she is as a person. And she is kind of starting to turn it around, maybe towards the end. I don't know. It's still a little unclear if she's turning it around or not. But yeah, why did she need her powers back? She could have, you know, kept being a normal person with no powers and turned it around. And that would have been a better arc. I mean, I guess she kind of needed it when they enter the Godstone, being a powder mage and not supposed to being there, I guess, threw things out of whack, which I don't know, maybe led to something more unpredictable than Cosedule was expecting. But I, I agree. I don't think that she she needed that. So before we talk through the rest of Laura's details, let's go to Mikkel. So Mikkel starts by, he's got Ectracia with him now, who is his companion for this book. She is rescued by him at the end of the second book. And she's also Kapol's long lost sister. Kapol's plotline, by the way, kind of reminds me of Anastasia. She's like the, you know, the long lost granddaughter of the king, doesn't know her backstory. Her family's been massacred and she's off on her own trying to find her way. I don't know. I liked Anastasia as a kid. It's one of my favorite cartoons, even though that uh, Dark of the Night montage terrified me. Yeah, I, I'm i ashamed to say that I don't remember anything from Anastasia. Maybe I watched it once in my childhood, but I literally don't remember anything. Yeah, bummer. I was scarred by that. If you know what I'm talking about, let's commensurate on Discord because that sequence is terrifying. But anyway, past Anastasia, back to Atracia and Mikkel. So Atracia is a privileged, right, a, a mage that can sense the elves. And she and Mikkel are now headed back into Landfall. Because Mikkel needs to continue to take down, I mean, continue to oppose Kasejil from the inside. That's his talent. That's where he's best suited. In order to get back in, so at the end of the second book, one of his fingers was cut off. And he was worried about being recognized as a halo with a missing finger. So he cuts off his other finger. And that's how devoted he is to his disguise. I thought that was kind of a, a gruesome moment, even though it was pretty, it was off camera. and. They, they make contacts in Greenfire Depths, which is like the slum where the Palo have been relegated to. They take down Meln Dunn, who was the leader of the, what, he was like the leader of the, the Palo kind of government-ish thing, more of like a crime boss. And then they learn that the Palo are being killed, being sacrificed in order to fuel the, the Godstone. So even though the Palo are being told that the Dainais are their allies because they're like their long-lost brethren. In reality, Sejil is rounding them up and killing them to activate the Godstones. So what do you think of Mikkel's start here? Yeah, I mean, well, the second book, Mikkel's in, I think, a little bit of turmoil because he sees a good side of the Dainais. He meets some good Dainais, and everybody's saying about how well the Dainais are treating the Palo even better than the Fertrastans would treat the Palo. And so... Mikkel at his core wants to better 
the payload situation wants them to gain uh, some sort of independence or right to vote, better treatment, whatever. So he's not sure. But then at the end of the book, he learns that the Palo are potentially being being killed by the Dainais to unlock the Godstone. And so that sort of throws it into turmoil. And the third book is him confirming that and really just developing himself more so than a spy, but as a leader of the Palo movement and really working for the Palo in this book. Whereas the last book, he's kind of been working indirectly for the Palo as being a spy. This book, he's more directly involved in the Palo affairs. And I did like that. Yeah, that was one of the highlights for me. The fact that this dude who has donned so many different hats and disguised himself so well, finally has the opportunity to actually fight for a cause that he believes in. And I really like the narrative of the Palo kind of uprising and the, you know, the, the subjugated native people are now able to take back their land, which is rightfully theirs. I thought that was a really great subplot to the books. And honestly, I wish it was explored more because they talk about this Palo nation being formed. And that was a big reveal in the second book. But honestly, I didn't feel like they did anything in this third book. Yeah, I don't know if he's sort of if Brian McClellan is leaving that open for additional trilogies to explore the Palo Nation, but they're well, kind of... I don't think so because he said that this is it for Powder Mage, and he's writing a new series which is due to come out in a couple of years. So I don't expect any more Powder Mage. This is it. Okay, all right. Well, then, yeah, I think they that was a missed opportunity if that's true that they they could have explored more. It's they're almost like a a hidden superpower on the continent that nobody really knows about. Yeah, they could have had some kind of secret magic of their own that came to bear and maybe made the ending a little more, uh, made a little more sense to me. I guess we'll kind of get into the ending and some of the beef I had with it. But yeah, I wish the Palo had just swooped in and been like, we've always been in charge of this continent and here's what we can do. And we just didn't see that. And that was disappointing. Yeah, I guess that might have, it might have invalidated a lot of, Mikkel's work as trying to free the Palo from the inside if he has some sort of exterior force just come and wave their hand and everything's better for the Palo. This way, Mikkel actually got to show what he's worth a little bit. So back to the second half of each of our hero's plots. So Stike has now been embroiled in some political intrigue. He tries to help Ors, the dragon man, save his mother but that's an ambush, and Ors is seriously injured. Stike goes to his brother Etsy to for for refuge for Sanctum here, even though Ors has told him not to. Etsy turns out to be a pretty cool dude, and then a lot of politics happen, and Stike just kind of sits on the sideline. And this is one of my beasts with the book because Stike is so cool, but McClellan kept him from doing the things that were cool because he's just kind of sitting on the sideline and watching the other people do this stuff and he's like oh yeah i'm not very good at politics so we'll let these guys figure it out and then towards the end finally you know he gets into the duel with this dragon man and he he kills a couple more dragon men he finally dons the magic armor which has been hinted at for the entirety of the series which i thought was another letdown because i thought it was going to do something cool but all it does is deflect bullets that's it it doesn't like supercharge him or anything just deflects the bullets and for something that was hinted at so frequently throughout the series is a little bit of a letdown. I don't know. And then we kind of get into the ending. Uh, Ryan, what did you think of Stike's middle to end plot? 
I could see why the slowing down would be boring a bit. But to counter that, Stike is a character who's used to just using violence to get his way. And he he's challenged by his sort of adopted daughter to learn to be patient and let other people do some of the work. And I, I guess this is the way that he is growing as a character is to, you know, violence isn't always the answer. Sometimes maybe we should talk it out. Let's, let's let Etsy do some politics to see or where that takes us. And although it's maybe not as exciting as for a reader, I think that I, I can see where uh, McClellan is is trying to take this character in terms of growth. I thought the interactions between Stike and Celine and Capole were some of the strongest moments throughout the book. They have a really good kind of friendship where Stike, you know, is the adopted father for Celine and he's somewhat of like not a father figure, but like him and Capole are a good team as well. Uh, I don't know exactly how to put a label on their relationship. But the interactions between them and the way that they're able to understand each other, even though Cap Hole doesn't speak, those are really good. So those are some of my favorite moments from the middle part. Getting back to your part about the ending with uh, with Stike's armor, it is supposed to deflect magic, right? And uh, But we didn't really see that in action. I, I agree that it wasn't utilized as much as it could have been, especially after being talked about through the entire series sort of at the end of the book you're left thinking like did he really even need that armor yeah it's kind of weird because as a big reader of fantasy you're kind of clued in to think okay this artifact the magical artifact is being referenced and it's being referenced a lot and so it's going to be important at some point for the end so you get all excited to finally see it and then you see it and you're like why did he need this it just deflected bullets but this dude can take bullets anyway like regular armor maybe could have deflected bullets why was this so vital yeah, a normal bullet to Ben Stike is kind of like a scrape from a knife for most people. I, he was shot in the face and he survived. And then at the end, I think Capole offers to heal him. And he's like, ah, nah, I'm fine. A little pain's good for a man. So what's the big deal with the armor? I don't know. He's a little bit prideful, I guess. Not Doesn't want to accept help from other people sometimes. That was a little bit strange. I was heartbroken during that scene when his horse died, though. Amrick, I think, is the name of the horse. Yeah, ah, th- yeah, that that was a good horse, man, and it charged valiantly and really led him through a lot. But uh, at the end, it was hamstrung and had to be put down. That was very disappointing. I, I mean, not disappointing. It was it was powerful. I would say I, th- I would say that was the moment where my heartstrings were pulled on the most when the horse died. Yeah, I as a side note, I kind of hate it when any animals die in books or in real life or anything. Like if if a character dies. I'll be sad, but if an animal dies, even a horse, I'm like, why is there why is there so many unnecessary animal deaths, especially with horses in fantasy? It always makes me sad, even when I don't even know who the horse is. They're just talking about, oh, and the horse he was riding got an arrow through the neck. I'm like, that poor thing. But then that just even made it that that much worse because Ben Stike, he lost his first horse when he was disgraced and went to the shooting squad. They kind of killed it out of spite. And then he gets this other horse, Amrak, which is loyal and helps him through battles. And then everything you would want in a horse, Amrak everything is awesome. you would want in a horse. And it just dies. I wish I would give this book a five out of five if that horse had lived. <laughs> I I mean, I liked that it died because it was really a good plot arc 
for, for Stike and his horses. And at the end, he says, ah, I'm just going to stay here, you know, and start raising horses. And you see him settle down and, and the horse thing comes back. So, yeah, I, I like that part. So let's go on to the rest of Laura's plotline. We leave Stike taking on the the native uprising. Uh, the, you know, the, the people in the Dionysus city that they're in have realized that they don't want the foreigner there who's trying to take him down. So they're trying to kill them. But pause there because we're getting the ending is where all the characters come together. So we'll talk through that together. But Vlora, she has captured the the capstone, not the capstone, but this pedestal to the godstones. She initiated like a midnight massacre of one of the other Dionysus forces, kind of a brutal moment, and then captured, did some outmaneuvering of the other Dionysus armies, and eventually is now floating down the river towards landfall. She meets back up with Olam. Finally, there was a bit of a, a tiff there where Olam went off and was insulted because she didn't tell him all the information, but he comes back and now she's happy again and she's getting her powers back. Uh, again, I mean, the, the Flora thing, I guess one, one other point was that she meets up with this Adro politician, Lady Snowbound, Snow, Snowfall, something like that. I think, yeah, Snowbound. Snowbound, sure. And she has cut a deal with Sediel and she's delivering the pedestal to him. So that there's some politics. Again, again, more politics, a bit of a slow burn here. Laura parts weren't my favorite. I don't know. Was this part any better for you, Ryan? It was a bit frustrating for me just to see a lot of the work that our main characters are getting done be undone by some angry politician, I guess. That was that was annoying for me. So I probably could have done without that part, to be honest. Yeah, I don't know if there's a whole lot to say about the rest of or the rest of Vlora's plotline. Yeah, we've already talked about her getting her magic back. and Yeah, yeah. So th- that's pretty much a wrap for Vlora until the ending. And so going on to Mikkel. So he is initiating an uprising of his own. He's, he's getting the Palo to revolt against the Dionys by telling them that, hey, you know, the, the Dionys are killing all you guys. They're not actually as friendly as they are trying to make you believe. And he also learns of Sediel's extermination order against the Yerit household. Yerit, I believe is the name. He was yeah. uh, buddies with them in the second book. Well, he was actually a spy against them, but he embedded himself inside their household. These are Dionysus citizens, but they're good people, and they are in opposition to Sediel as well. And so there's a few different undercurrents going on here that he's kind of navigating, and right as all this is coming to a head, we get to the ending I really enjoyed Mikkel's second half here. And the thing I liked the most about it was his interaction with the, the Yerits because you saw him, you know, really kind of be a good person and fulfill on some promises that he made as a spy that he could have just turned his back on these guys. But because he decided that, hey, I'm going to be a good person, I'm going to help these guys out. That was really, you know, very crucial to him navigating all these undercurrents and, and making it through until the end, and he was able to save them, I believe, although we're not really told what their ultimate fate is, other than he leads them into safety in the catacombs, uh, safety against Sediel's extermination order. Yeah, the other thing I would mention about Mikkel that I liked is when his girlfriend, Nictracia, is captured by Casedjul to be used as a sacrifice. He Mikkel decides, you know, he loves this girl, and he's going to go after her. And I like that part. I like their their romance that story was it was it was a decent romance you know not too amazing but not bad either 
Yeah, it wasn't on camera a whole lot, but I thought it was pretty solid for what it was. And he did pretty well for himself. I mean, Tracy is a privilege. She's Dionys royalty. Uh, she's probably very beautiful, although I don't remember the exact description. So I like romances quite a bit. I'm, a, I'm soft at heart. So I thought I thought this was good. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And the characters in this book are very good. There's not a lot of gray characters. Everybody sort of makes the right decisions at the right times. I guess you could kind of consider Mikkel's betrayal of the year at household when he revealed his true colors to be working for Taniel to be a little bit gray. But I mean, then he's just trying to do what's right for his people. So even then, he's still a good guy. And this just, it, it just cemented his good morality, I guess, as a character, because he was able to go back and help the people that he betrayed, help those people who he was originally working for, and everybody's happy. Yeah, this was more of a happy endings type book. People or characters are being good. They're making the right decisions. And ultimately, they're rewarded, even though there's some hard decisions to make along the way. So going into the ending now, you've kind of hinted at it. He goes to save Ectracia, who's been taken by Sediol to be used as a sacrifice in order to activate the Godstone. This was a nice twist. I had forgotten that Kasedjil had Mikkel's finger. And so when he went to oppose him, he was immediately controlled by the blood magic, by the bone eye magic. And he was forced to kill Ectracia, or so we think, for like five seconds. <laughs> and... And she and, and her death activates the Godstone, which is a portal into the else. And Sigil walks in, and then several other things are happening as well. Pole, Kapol, enters the Godstone from her end over in the Dionysus capital. Uh, Mikkel goes in with Ectracia to try to save her. There's a bit of a showdown between Kapol and uh, and Kasegil. That's happening. Granddaughter and grandfather. Valora goes in, she pulls Mikkel out because this is no place for mortals. Ectracia is healed. There's some kind of nebulous stuff that happens. And then Kapol comes out on top. And that is a wrap for the conflict. So if you couldn't tell by the way that I summarized this, I was a little iffy on the on the ending. I felt like there was some just kind of hand waving that happened. And then the godstones were resolved. Yeah, I, I think it was... A little bit iffy, but later events made it a bit more clear to me. There was a power struggle between the two blood mages. What are, what are they called again? The Bone Eyes. The Bone Eyes. Yeah. So between Kapol and Kasedjul, the two Bone Eyes, they're both kind of fighting each other over to gain power of the Godstone. And then Igtracia comes in and... Kasedjil's trying to convince Ictracia to lend her help to him, but ultimately she gives her backing to Kapol and helps her overcome their evil uncle. Or grandfather. Oh yeah. Is he their grandfather? <laughs> He's Kapol's grandfather and Ictracia is her sister. So therefore that makes him grandfather to both, right? If I can do a family tree correctly. All right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you're right. Definitely grandfather. Yeah. And that's the first time the sisters meet up. And there was a lot of backstory with Capole kind of, you know, wanting to learn her origin story and being pushed as a as a potential candidate for replacement emperor. So her plotline, I think, resolves the best out of any single plotline. I really liked Capole's arc, especially in this book. I mean, she was a good character. 
in all six books, but in this book especially, really liked it. Yeah, I, I did like how this trilogy explored her backstory and a lot of the unanswered questions we had from the first trilogy. Uh, there is one caveat I have, which I'll save for my worst of the best about that. But overall, I found it very satisfying. Okay, my wish of the best also comes from Capole's storyline. So hopefully we don't have the same one. We will see in a few minutes. Let's just do kind of a wrap up of a few uh, loose ends here. So Capole becomes the new empress. Flora is kind of at peace with herself and heads back to Adro, right? She decides to go back. I, I believe she has a choice between Dionysus and Adro and decides to go back. Yeah, and she's worried about going back because of her interactions with Lady Snowbound. And did she kill her? I forget. Or just betray her. I don't know if uh, if Lady Snowbound's fate was revealed. I cannot remember that. But anyways, Flora kind of double-crossed the Aduan government. And so she's worried about returning. No doubt. But it, it seems like she should be able you know, to get herself a nice lawyer and, and get it all hashed out. She did the right thing. I'm sure Taniel will come and help her if, if she needs help. See, there are some things that Brian McClellan leaves open, which is why I'm surprised that he said he's the series is done. Maybe he'll go back to it one day, but he said on the record that he's done. Although lots of authors have said lots of things on the record that have not come to fruition. <clears throat> Patrick Rothfuss. <clears throat> <laughs> anyway, not to, not to sidetrack too much, but uh, so Stike and Celine are also settling down. Stike is going to raise horses. Celine is going to go back to school. Eventually, he kind of resolves with Linda, his sister. And then Mikkel becomes the new spy master and he marries Ectracia. So happy ending for them. Any other parting shots from you? No, I mean, not only does Kapol become empress, but she also basically receives all this godlike power from the godstones. And then she also uses that power to destroy the godstones so that nobody else can use them in the future. Oh, that's right. Yes, I forgot the godstones were destroyed. Yeah, that's obviously an important thing. One other thing that I just want to say before we go into worst of the best was I wish there was more humor in these books. It seems like there are plenty of opportunities for there to be some kind of comedic relief character or just some dark humor. And there's not very many times where I was chuckling at all and or laughing out loud, I don't think at all. And I, I really kind of missed that. I feel like that was a missed opportunity for Brian. Well, I, I can't remember. Was there a lot of humor in the first trilogy? I don't remember either, but I doubt it, unless there was some comedic relief character that he didn't like. I mean, I never thought about that when I was reading these books, that there was a, a severe lack of humor. So I, it, didn't, it didn't affect my reading experience that much. But maybe it's just Brian McClellan's writing style. He doesn't rely on humor as much as we're used to. And that's fine, but I just felt like maybe that was one missing element that, that could potentially make these books a little bit stronger. It's nice to have the diversity. It's nice to laugh a little bit, break up the, you know, the seriousness and the frenetic pace that we're moving at. Yeah. So let's go into our final segment, worst of the best. Ryan, tell me yours. And if yours is the same one that I'm thinking of, I'm going to go to my second. I have a second one ready to go. Oh, well, if it's not, I still want to hear both of yours. Yep. <laughs> my worst of the best is in the end, you have... Kapol, who has this godlike power, and then you have her husband, Taniel Tushot, who through the Boni magic and his fight with Kresimir, he somehow becomes more than a powder mage, but not quite a god. So they're basically this dream team couple who are both very good. 
And it's hard to imagine anything that they could encounter in future writings uh, by Brian McClellan, if there are any, that it wouldn't be super easy for them to take down. Because the only other god that we know of is Adam, who's also a very good god. So I, I don't see them coming into conflict with him at all. So it, it, it doesn't leave it open to any sort of conflict, which some people might not mind, but they're just, I guess, overpowered. Yeah, they're too overpowered. Taniel in this series, he wasn't great, to be honest. I mean, he was in the background a lot, but he was like too noble, too perfect. He suffered from the same thing that uh, Waxilium, if that's his name, Wax, from Mistborn Era 2 suffers from, where I just can't get behind the guys because they don't seem like real people. They're just way too perfect. Yeah, and if, if you don't like that, then you're not really going to like, I think, either of the Powder Mage trilogy or the Gods of Powder and Blood trilogy. I think that's just how Brian McClellan largely writes his characters is very good morally. And that's fine, but I thought Taniel had a better arc in the first trilogy and he did have some shortcomings. Like you saw him in the Maladens, I think is the drug that they are addicted to. So he had plenty of shortcomings, but in this trilogy, he was just perfect and he was way too smart and knew everything, except he spent way too much time on the background and was just like traveling around all the time and didn't really have that much of an impact. Daniel was weird to me because at one, on one hand, he was way too overpowered. But on the other hand, he didn't do that much. He just like wanted to pull the puppet strings and he didn't really want to be involved. I agree with that. I don't know why he was off scene. Maybe it's just because he was too overpowered. Maybe McClellan just thought his character arc finished up neatly in the first trilogy. And so there wasn't much character development that needed to go on in this trilogy for Taniel. So that's why he left him out a lot. He was just the Bran Stark pulling the strings in the background the whole time. Taniel the Broken. Putting things together in order to become consort to the Empress, which was his ultimate goal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, uh, let's see. Actually, one more thing before we go to my worst, the best, briefly mentioning the the magic in the books was pretty soft, but also hard. There were some systems like the Powder Mage magic that you had a pretty firm grasp on, privileged magic, maybe kind of in the middle, Boni magic, pretty much anything. I mean, you saw them using uh, dolls to control people. Blood was obviously involved, but it seemed like they could become really powerful really fast. So, I mean, if you're into soft magic systems, this magic system was pretty good. I can't really fault the magic too much. There are three distinct things going on here, and they were all pretty compelling. Yeah, I, I liked the magic systems. It wasn't always super clear what they did or how they did it, but that's not something I'm unfamiliar with. There's plenty of fantasy series out there where it's not it's not known how the magic works, especially in Malazan. Who knows what's going on with the magic system there. <laughs> but some people really prefer to know that type of stuff, and that will bother you if you're a fan of hard magic systems, Sanderson-like magic systems. It bothered me a little bit, but by and large, I was okay with it. So worst of the best for me was Capole's ending where she gets her speech back. And this was another thing similar, no spoilers for the end of the Lightbringer series, but I had similar issues with the end of Lightbringer because Capole does not need to talk. She is fine being mute. And this is something that defines her and really makes her interesting. Why did she have to be healed at the ending 
in order to get to her ultimate place as Empress. I don't like that because I feel like the ending of her plot is like, she has, she's got to be healed. She's not um, who she is until this deficiency has been healed from her. And I like characters that are disabled and broken and have things wrong with them, but nevertheless are awesome. And she was awesome with this disability being mute. So why was she healed? I really didn't like that. I mean, I guess that kind of goes along with mine a little bit where she just becomes God and and it'd be kind of weird if you have God-like powers, but then you still aren't able to speak. Yeah, I, I, su- I suppose so. I see what you're saying. So plot-wise, maybe that doesn't make sense, but it could have been written cleverly where she still couldn't talk. I don't know. Or maybe she she gained the ability to speak, but she chose not to because she preferred communicating in other ways. Yeah, something like that. I, I would have liked that more. So that was my worst of the best. The second one was a little bit smaller. Uh, towards the end, when they see Adam really briefly and he kind of like winks at them, I thought that was really compelling because it was a fun little Easter egg crossover and kind of gave you a bit of an idea of what was going on. But I wanted that explained more because he was a fun character in the first trilogy and I would have liked to maybe see him do something or, or, or lend a little bit of more of an explanation to what happened at the end. But he's just there really briefly. Yeah, I guess it just shows that he's also pulling strings behind the scene and working for a better future for everybody. I don't know. That's all That's all I can draw from it. Yeah. All right. I think we both overall enjoyed this series quite a bit. If you are a fan of Brandon Sanderson, Wheel of Time especially, this will be right up your alley. If you're a fan of military, large military fantasy type things, and give this a listen. Although I suppose if you are listening this far in, you've probably already read the book or you don't need to because we just spoiled everything anyway thank you ryan for coming on with me this has been fun a nice review of the uh, the finale of the series and like i said we're gonna try to review promise of blood with josh who is starting it pretty soon so we'll backtrack to the very beginning so that'll be fun to see the the prelude of all of this yeah i i definitely like this trilogy like i said it's not a masterpiece but it's entertaining page turner for me at least and i could recommend it to a lot of different people who i think would enjoy it yeah so thank you for listening this has been another episode of phantology books if you like what we're putting out check us out at, on uh, social media at phantology books or on our website phantologybooks.com join the conversation on discord and tell us all the mistakes that we're making maybe give us some nice words as well and if you really like us be a patron we're kind of a fun growing community so thanks ryan See you next time.